morning and welcome to Rising. We are broadcasting from the past today. Not really. We actually, we're just going to read the wrong script. But now I'm going to tell you the news of actually today. Brianna, what is the news of today? Well, today we have a very special guest to discuss the elections taking place in Brazil. And News Nation's Chris Steyerwalt previews the Texas gubernatorial debate hosted by Nexstar. But let's begin with the latest on Hurricane Ian. ABC News reports that Ian's winds have weakened to 65 miles per hour this morning, downgrading the hurricane to a tropical storm. Ian made landfall yesterday on Florida's west coast as a powerful Category 4 hurricane. News Nation's Brian Enton reports that power is out almost everywhere in Fort Myers and there's no running water at his hotel and cell service is spotty. This morning, water has receded downtown, revealing lots of damage left behind. Brian added that he had to drive around several boats that had drifted into the road. Here's some of Brian's firsthand footage yesterday. It's just incredible. In downtown mm -hmm. Fort Myers, at least 1.6 million people in Florida are without power as winds as high as 100 50 miles per hour wallop the state overnight. Look at that. Mm, incredible. Meanwhile, Governor Ron DeSantis assured Floridians yesterday that the state was ready for a response to the hurricane. Quote, we have fleets of high water vehicles, 42,000 linemen, 7,000 National Guardsmen, and 179 aircraft prepared to help. The 40,000-plus linemen were captured on standby in the state, ready to get to work. The Barstool Sports account applauded the workers as legit superstars. And they are. Yeah. Heroes, absolutely. The footage coming out of the state last night, everyone was sharing, obviously, on social media, was incredible, especially yeah. the time-lapse footage, which really gave you a sense of how deep a lot of the water shots we saw were. Yeah, that was what was uh, mo motivating to me. It, I mean, it, that the water is, the level is so, in the streets, you had, you could see, like, just the tops of cars in places. You could see, you know, trees that are half covered. A lot of water, a lot of water. Yeah, um, people had their cars in their garage, garages yeah. sloshing around, uh, you know, kind of floating. But obviously, you know, people in Florida are prepared. They get hit with hurricanes. I yeah. think they're prepared for the high winds, the, sure. rain, you know, storms. They have, they have homes. They have built to withstand not not everyone it is still you know things happen but i think they're prepared for that kind of but you it's impossible to be prepared for the street flooded to like shoulder shoulder height it's yeah crazy yeah there were you know obviously you know people saw there was a shark swimming down the street oh so somebody... i think that was fake news oh that was fake yes news? i think okay. that was okay well, i i did see that but it was i believe debunked Yes, Twitter falls for fake shark video okay, from Hurricane fair, Ian. Okay, fair enough. No, I mean, I no did see a, a photoshopped orca, which is a lot easier to call out as fake. Yeah. But, I mean, it was plausible in part because it's just there was such, such a high volume of water. Footage of people inside of their homes where the water had come partially up their stairway. And then the, the reporters themselves who put themselves in, in the hurricane's path yeah. to get this kind of footage could barely stand up. I saw one guy got knocked over by a branch and was holding on to a a, traffic, um, a signage on the side of the road, the pole for support, and otherwise would have been swept away. I, I don't know if we if the storms continue to be this strong, if people should continue to put themselves in harm's way like that. But it certainly is an incredible demonstration well, of the power of the storm. Speaking of that, we did see footage of a, a, a few people on sort of like a dock, a pier mm -hmm. by the beach mm -hmm. that were you know going swimming during the hurricane, mm -hmm. which is just like 
like, you know what? Do what I would say, do whatever you want to do. That's on you. That's really stupid, but I won't force it. But the issue is then, then people have to go rescue yeah, them. Someone then has to save service you. people have to go help them mm -hmm. when, they're, when they're in mortal peril, which they obviously will be trying to swim in a hurricane. So mm -hmm. don't do that because then that imposes an obligation on other people to help you yeah. and you put them in danger. Yeah. So it's really stupid. Absolutely. Really stupid. Well, The View's Joy Bihar took a page from CNN's Don Lemon and blamed the severity of the hurricane on climate change, insinuating that the state of Florida somehow deserved the mess. Let's watch that. This is the quote from Governor DeSantis yeah. about climate change. Quote, I am not in the pews of the church of the global warming leftists. This is what he thinks about climate change. And now his state is getting hit with one of the worst hurricanes well, that perhaps, they will ever see. Perhaps Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, look, like I've said, I, I accept that there is now, um, uh, you know, evidence, some evidence, uh, a lot of scientific experts uh, who study climate change do think that it is contributing or could contribute to worsening storms um, with, uh, with as ocean temperatures rise, mm -hmm. that could lead to stronger winds, um, as sea levels rise in general, mm -hmm. that you know, creates more flooding. I, I get that. At, now, it's harder to find in the granular data, you know, exactly this is how many more frequent or destructive the hurricanes are. Well, no, but it's, it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one relationship, but, you know, research shows that over the past 39-year period, uh, or this was a study from 2017, so from 1979 to 2017, the number of major hurricanes has increased while the number of minor hurricanes have decreased as a right. consequence, scientists think, of warmer sea surface temperatures uh, causing more intense tropical storms and allowing them to pick up spe more speed and causing more damage when they fall. So I, I, don't, I don't think that it's, like I appreciate why uh, the uh, weather reporter or, or weather scientist that we talked about yesterday in the conversation with Don Lemon may have wanted to focus on the particulars of the current hurricane as opposed to talking about the broader global trends of global warming. But what Joy read there about uh, Ron DeSantis' statement has much broader implications than this hurricane. According to that quote, it sounds like the man doesn't believe in climate change at all. And I don't know if I would agree with that. He is not in the in the pews of the of what is the cult or choir, the church. Or the church excuse right. me. Of, of well, that could just mean change. you don't uh, agree with some of the solutions or the or or the total focus on this issue, um, or or what activists you know want in response to addressing it. Um, well, that's that's a little. I mean, that's a little concerning for those of us who do believe in climate change and do believe it's one of the threats. I also that's... believe in climate change. Although I was reading a very interesting. I'm throw my pencil here. I was reading an <laughs> interesting article from uh, Michael Schellenberg, uh, who we had on to talk. It, he he did in uh, one of our debates on homelessness uh, and uh, drug addiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was pointing out that um, over time, the deadliness of hurricanes has actually gone way, 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 way down. Fewer people die in hurricanes uh, in the... It, in the past, in the is that 20 because teens we evacuate versus people 1970s more, versus the we 1920s. Have better, do we have better infrastructure buildings, evacuate we have people, technology. levees? Right, we have better okay, technology. Okay, so that, that yeah. makes sense, but that doesn't say anything about the increasing severity of storms themselves. Well, I know, but no, but the issue is some of the, the increased carbon emissions, the, the things we're doing that are having a negative impact on the environment, are some, a lot of those have created a... a Wealthier, more technically, technologically advanced society that can then with much is much better prepared to withstand storms. Well, there's, so well, there's many there's many problems with that. One that not every storm that our 
uh, emissions create happens in the United States of America. Southeast Asia is also bearing the brunt of a lot of these increased, uh, more powerful storms without the same resources and infrastructure right. to bear, you know, to, to, to wear, wear through it. Moreover, overall, the global South, because of the temperature rise, is bearing the brunt of global warming. And it's unfortunate because obviously America is a lead emitter. So they're, they're having to pay for the cost of our emissions. And that's going to eventually come back to bite us as we have to contend with the global migration patterns as people flee these now inhospitable places. There were how many days in India this year with triple-digit di heat where thousands of people are dying in parts of the world just because it's too hot to go outside? But as those societies, absolutely, but as those societies become more affluent and more like the West or like the U.S. in terms of their um, technological progress, we would expect, whether or not storms get any worse, we would expect their deaths from, from extreme weather events to plummet the way ours has over time. So it's... Yeah, I so think. one would say that some some would say that's the solution to reinvest in I, progress and technology so, so this, rather than live in the dark so ages year, where people were dying of violent weather in a much much so, much much larger proportion. So, so this year, thousands of people died from a heat exhaustion, heat stroke, heat related ailments. Thousands of people died, including in China. Lots and lots of people die from uh, air pollution. There are droughts and mass migrations that are caused by uh, famines all across the world as a consequence of climate change today. So I do think there's something that seems a little cruel about holding out that someday some technology is going to be invented that might bring global death rates in line when people are suffering right now as a consequence of our I'm actions not, right now. Well, I, look, it, it, you never want to sound glib, of course, about people. So, yes, people are suffering around the world. Yes, there are still famines. There's still hunger. There's still disasters, all of those things. But basically on every scale, all of those things have gotten less deadly and less destructive that's over not, time. I mean, that's that's not true. It but, is true. That, that's not true. And you can read David Wallace Wells and others' extensive reporting about the enormous death toll that climate change is causing currently in the world. But to keep it focused just a little bit. It's not causing. It, it is causing. I'm not saying it's not. It is. But it's still on a historical sta a scale. Fewer people are dying of these various things because we have progressed. Robbie, those kinds of metrics are deployed to de derail people from actually addressing the issues that exist today. Because if you say, well, most people died of smallpox 100 years ago, so fewer people are dying of, uh, you know, uh, Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just a factor of people not living as long, or people not having you know the time to die of the things that people die of today. It doesn't actually mean it was a better world in the past, and it certainly doesn't mean that we need we don't need. It's to not be, a better world in the past. I'm saying it's not a better world. That it's past. a better world now than it was in the past, and it certainly doesn't mean that we don't need to be addressing the real crises that are already here and that are only going to get worse as we go forward if we don't get. Um, the climate crisis under control. But we should definitely have a more fulsome conversation about that because I do think people have a legitimate concern about whether or not a conversation about an ongoing crisis in Florida should be subsumed into a broader climate uh, crisis conversation. So we'll try to make space for that at some point next week, perhaps. And I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next. <laughs> Stay with us. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, yesterday my radar on Brett Favre's role in the Mississippi welfare scandal hit on what I believe is an important theme. 
One of the roles that I take most seriously as someone with this platform is highlighting the ways the media misleads working people of all backgrounds as to who is the cause of their problems in life and what should be their focus. Working class and poor people are obviously majorities of the country. The idea of a 99% and a 1% is not just some metaphor. It's a reflection of the distribution of wealth and power in this country. And it should be a reflection of the distribution of power in the other way, with the 99% having more. But we know that it's not. There's a reason why our laws, our tax policy, our police force, and our healthcare policy are designed to protect the rich. It's because the poor, despite outnumbering the rich, don't have real power. We don't live in a real democracy. I've cited before a 2014 Princeton study that showed that there is no relationship between what majorities of people want and what Congress delivers. And part of the way the powers that be get away with stealing our democracy is by distracting us with the differences between us, hoping we'll forget all the things we agree on. According to a new Congressional Budget Office report, the poorest half of America, 150 million people, hold only 2% of the country's total wealth. The top 10 percenters have seen their wealth grow by leaps and bounds since 1989, but half the country lives on the remaining 2% of the pie. Does anyone really think that the bottom half of the country's earners really only work as hard, have only contributed as much value to the country as 2%? This wealth distribution has come as a consequence of government policies. When union density was higher and worker power was stronger, taxes on the rich were much higher, and the gap between CEO pay and the pay of workers who made them rich was much narrower. The ratio was 21 to 1 in 1965. It's now 351 to 1. And as if you needed more evidence, CEOs are openly telling investors they are, quote, praying for inflation. They're bragging about price gouging, and the government is openly telling you that they're trying to create unemployment. Corporate CEOs who care more about marginally increasing profit for shareholders than reinvesting in their companies and the communities that made them great ship jobs overseas, a practice that not only devastated the American working class, but is at the root of the supply chain crisis that's driving inflation. Politicians weaponize fear of the other to turn Americans of different backgrounds against each other, so we don't notice that a rainbow coalition of diverse corporate cro crooks are screwing us all. And all along, the media is there to manufacture consent. Enter the New York Times editorial, published Tuesday, which asks the American public to please, please, please think of the landlords. The piece, written by Lydia DePillis, rightly focuses on a real crisis, the rent crisis. Rising housing costs are one of the categories driving inflation, and renters are bearing the brunt of those costs. The price of new leases are up about 17% from the March of 2020. Home prices are up more than 30% over the past couple of years. And homeowners are looking at interest rates so high that they're starting to look like student debtors' interest rates. The cause here is no mystery. We're in the midst of a historical housing shortage. And even if we had leaders poised to do something about it, even the best meaning politician is someone constrained by a very real supply chain crisis limiting building supplies. But that's not the whole story. Wall Street investors took advantage of pandemic era housing crisis to buy up real estate. Institutional investors like REITs and private equity firms snapped up these properties as investments rather than homes. And many of them have been taken off the market as affordable rental properties and are instead being used as 
Airbnbs, and more expensive sale units. A recent report by ProPublica found that private equity firms now dominate among the top 35 largest owners of apartment buildings in the U.S., accounting for 85% of the biggest apartment deals financed by Freddie Mac since 2015. These huge corporate landlords have consequently come under a great deal of scrutiny and critique. But the New York Times deploys a neat trick here, deflecting from the obvious harms caused by corporate landlords and instead writing a sympathetic piece that foregrounds mom and pop landlords. This is how the Times framed the piece. As tenants face increasingly high rents, publicly traded corporate landlords are reporting some of their highest margins ever. For smaller landlords, the situation can look very different. Okay, but watch this bait and switch. Rather than pointing out that smaller landlords might be faring more poorly than their corporate counterparts, the author actually characterizes an enormous corporate landlord as a small landlord, the likes of which the public should, for some reason, have sympathy for. Quote, publicly traded owners of sprawling real estate portfolios like Invitation Homes have enjoyed some of their best returns over the past few quarters, Lydia admits. But things look very different, for, however, for Neil Verma, whose company manages 6,000 apartments in the Houston area. 6,000 apartments. 6,000 apartments. A mega landlord housing 6,000 units is unironically the focus of the Times' sympathetic piece about small landlords. Neil Varna goes on to complain in the article, his margins are being crushed. He vetches that despite trying, uh, trying raising rents on some of his properties, they're just still breaking even. As millions of Americans faced eviction because they lost their jobs in the housing crisis, this article is focused on this mega landlord. The article quotes other mom-and-pop landlords <laughs> like Swamp Hill Agarwal, whose Houston-based uh, Nita Capital has swelled to include 20,000 units. Another landlord, Steve Schwatt, a principal at the folksily named UIP Asset Management, complained, I think this inflationary environment is a more negative to landlords than it is a positive. Most landlords would tell you, I really liked 2001. Things were coming back. Interest rates were low. Things seemed to be going relatively easy. 2022 is a B. <laughs> media critics and left populists, of course, skewer the article on social media, including the pathos-filled picture at the top featuring a lone, intrepid entrepreneur landlord. Adam Johnson, co-host of the popular Citations Needed uh, podcast and a media critic, uh, screen grabbed a section of the article which makes a passionless reference to the pictured landlord's tenants, who is currently trying to evict, ironically tweeting, pity the evictor. Others observe that the New York Times' largest shareholders include investment corporations like Vanguard and BlackRock, who have invested heavily in real estate. Conflict of interest much? And many leftists simply pressed on this simple point. Landlords, at least those who own 10, 20, 1,000 properties, serve a parasitic function in society. They squat on properties that are in low supply, preventing others from becoming homeowners and drawing passive income from the wealth of others while doing little to improve the property or provide any labor value at all. Quote, if you own a few houses and rent them out, I'm happy for you and I don't dislike you observed one person, but no one, especially not blood-sucking multinationals, should own more than 10 homes. I have never been given even the slightest reason to believe otherwise. 
<laughs> well, the New York Times is trying to give you a reason. Across America, homes sit empty as profiteers choose to purpose them uh, for profit according to, uh, rather than purposing them for the public need. And Americans are suffering from it. But the New York Times sees it differently. Won't somebody think about the landlords? This story is merely part of a broader trend of coverage that asks the public to protect the rich and turn vulnerable communities against each other. Articles about the pending rail worker strike downplay the workers' non-existent time off conditions, including a complete absence of weekends, and they play up the effect on consumers, pushing Americans to identify as the latter and never, ever, ever as the workers they also are. Politicians vilify low-wage work they consider to be unimportant, using so-called real laborers to launder their contempt for some of the biggest parts of the labor sector in America, retail workers. This is a division the so-called real workers resist. Here's a real worker, Ross Grutens, speaking to this issue on my podcast, Bad Faith, this week. I just want to go back to something you said about how there is uh, a discrepancy, uh, especially in, in certain circles between say a service sector job and, and something like my profession and say that uh, we need to pull down those, those barriers and those walls. There, there shouldn't be any different, shout out to Starbucks workers, there shouldn't be any difference between uh, myself as a rail worker and somebody who is uh, creating my pumpkin spice latte because there's skill involved with that and uh, people have to put in the, the time to create that, uh, that product. Workers understand how important it is to resist divisions between members of their class. It's obvious that, especially in a country as unequal as ours, power comes from numbers, and the 1% win when they divide us up. It's why I responded to the Photoshop jobs like these, saying it would be an honor to be associated with sanitation workers, refusing to accept being a worker as a slur. Over and over again, faux populists promise to take down elites while their first move is to cut programs for the poor and give to the rich. Whether it's Mississippi's corrupt governor, who have given handouts to millionaire uh, Brett Favre, or Italy's new PM, Giorgia Maloney, whose first move appears to be doing away with a subsidy for the poor. There's a liberal version of this too. Identity politics are often cynically weaponized to make people turn against workers. They claim that unions hold no promise for black and brown workers, for example, ignoring the significant role marginalized ma racial groups have always had in the labor movement and the fact that black workers today are 17% more likely to be unionized. Imagine the mental gymnastics needed to see through uh, America's most prominent union organizer right now, Chris Smalls of the Amazon Union Drive, to lodge a complaint about unions, quote, co-opting the black power fist. Give me a break. As a strike wave mounts across the country and protests of horrible living and working conditions for the 99%, as the 1% thrives, efforts to divide us up will become more and more common. So we're going to have to get smarter about media criticism starting now. Hmm. Yeah, look, uh, obviously people, I mean, I mean <laughs> workers should, should, are free to uh, advocate for themselves and to organize and to get more of what they deserve and, and deserve more than they're getting. I don't have any issue with that. We can find common cause on that. I don't know that we need to, love to see it. stigmatize <laughs> landlords, but uh, it's, uh, you know. What's, what is the resistance? Let's get into that a little bit. What is the resistance to stigmatizing landlords? Because in other contexts, I mean, not, I'm not saying this is what you do or what happens on this show, but there certainly does seem to me to be an effort to stigmatize various other groups in this country. 
trans people, the parents well, of trans people. Wait a minute. Uh, you know, immigrants, um, you know, woke folks, college kids, Black Lives Matter people. And that's not to say you have to agree with everybody there or their politics, but the amount of energy that goes toward vilifying, you know, some girl in high school who wants to play on her volleyball team, trans girl, um, versus landlords who are really doing this thing where they're corporations buying up properties, squatting on them, not giving them to people who are literally homeless, don't have an alternative place to live, are facing mass evictions in the context of this crisis. If anyone is going to be vilified, why does it seem like there's not really an objection to vilifying Group A? And I'm not saying that you want to vilify Group A, but there's no, no real public objection to group, vilifying Group A. But if you come for landlords, the New York Times is going to jump in and defend you. Well, I'm not going to defend the New York Times coverage choices because <laughs> they're abominable. Let's not, let's try not to stigmatize anyone. Let's try to find sensible policies that work for everyone. I'm, I'm just in, I'm in a, I'm in an accommodating mood today, Brianna. It, 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 it's, an, it's, it's an interesting question because I do think a lot of people do react kind of instinctively and say, well, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody. And, or I know someone who's a landlord and certainly this is not about smaller landlords, someone who owns you know, one or two properties, because unfortunately we live in a country where folks have been told that to have middle-class status, like home ownership, property ownership is the way to do it. And in the same way that I feel like people being put on the student loan path and told by the government that that's what you should do, shouldn't get blamed for the consequences. People who've been told, you know, buy houses up and that's the only way you can be have a middle class status. Like even though I think there are, are perverse social consequences mm -hmm. of that, it's not their fault as individuals. I think it's a systemic issue, and I don't I don't blame them. But these big mega corporations that are literally creating the crisis that we live in, some people would say a leftist a leftist kind of um, dare I say Marxist analysis would say that people cannot be rich without others being poor, and there is a there is a relationship between the an enormous aggregation of wealth at the top that has happened, especially during the pandemic, and the poverty that people have been thrown in, and that these things aren't separate, but and so therefore you absolutely do have to have some angst. You do have to have some pointed critique of the rich. It's not just that you can expect the poor to rise up without there being consequences. Not true, though, because over again, over time, this is going to sound similar to what I said in our first discussion about the, the severe weather. Over time, everyone has, yes, the, the wealthy might be even wealthier uh, versus the poor, more so than 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but everyone is much ago. wealthier. But, 30 years ago. Right, but, but but the average person is also wealthier, that's, also that's, lives that's better off. True. So it's not true that that only the wealthier that, that it's a there's a finite pie and it, it's going to be sliced one way or the other. That's just not that's not human. No, experience. The, the pie gets bigger. The pie but the gets rich, bigger and bigger. But the and bigger. rich people get a bigger and bigger slice. Of they the do. Pie so that people who are poor actually are seeing declines. For the They're first not time, seeing declines. For the first time in American history, life expectancy including for white people in America, has gone down. You have diseases of despair devastating parts of this country, particularly in the Midwest. You have the, for the millennials. Our generation is the first generation who is expected to be less financially solvent than our partners, uh, sorry, than our parents, rather. Every article that comes out is about how millennials are killing the housing market and millennials are killing um, the, the engagement ring market and millennials are killing everything because we are not able to hit the milestone yeah, that other generations have done. We have a lot of done. policy issues. We have a lot, again, I think we should just ease all the restrictions on building houses. We should, um, our, you know, our, our efforts to subsidize education and health care and all sorts of other things have not made them better or more affordable. I agree with that. 
Um, all right, we're hearing we got to go. Look, when people say make America great again, they're pointing to a, a, a lived experience of it being easier to support their families on working class don't you salaries. Don't there's a romanticizing of the past going on? Uh, of course there is, but there is also something real there. And millions of Americans experienced it and it resonated with them when Reagan said make America great again and when Donald Trump said make America great again. And I think that it's unwise to ignore that. There's something real happening here. People's lives are getting worse. And it's important for us to be able to speak to the reason that is happening and not brush it away. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. YouTube recently removed a video of Italy's incoming prime minister, Georgia Maloney, where she's describing her family-centric vision for the country in an old speech from 2019. So I asked YouTube to explain why it took down the video. And after I did that, they reversed course and put the video back up. A spokesperson for YouTube, Ivy Choi, said, quote, Upon careful review, we determined this video is not violating our community guidelines, and we have reinstated it. How about that? So did she point to what guideline it could even have potentially nope. have violated? Nope. And just to be clear, were there, you know, this is a very common video. Obviously, everybody's been yeah. circulating it. Did it exist in multiple iterations on YouTube and were other iterations safe? The one they took down I, I, uh, was the full video. It was the full video. I think there were clips on Twitter, but it, it was like the video in Twitter. I don't think it was linking to an actual YouTube video. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, the full video of it on YouTube, it had been tweeted by a number of people, a lot of conservatives. Obviously, people who are interested to understand what Georgia Maloney's views are were interested. We mm -hmm. had a guest on to discuss it. Um, um, uh, my friend Ben Dominich, uh, who works at The Spectator and is on Fox, he had tweeted it. And then later someone pointed out that, uh, that what the you tweeted is, is no longer, mm -hmm. I mean, you can click through to it, but it, it just, it goes to a thing that says community guidelines for YouTube have been violated. This YouTube, this video is no longer available. Um, and then, you know, then there was a lot of, uh, I think, justified complaining about this from, uh, from conservative outlets. But really everyone is trying to grapple with what this woman believes. What, yeah. what, she, what, what her Look, views are. The, the news value of it is obvious. You know, this show has been similarly penal, penalized for simply playing a speech right. of the former president of the United States in which he was saying lies, right. but which I think is also of news value to be able to simply yeah. cover a former president giving a speech shouldn't get you, sh you know, struck down on social media apps. And, you know, even substance, you know, the, the substance of it aside, it is just such a bad look for the platform as other competitors are rearing their heads. You know, people, I think that quantities like Rumble are going to become a lot more attractive to folks if YouTube gets this reputation for having a knee-jerk response to certain videos because of political reasons. And I know that a lot of yeah. leftists were very concerned when RT was taken down and other moments have happened over the course of this past year. This isn't a good look. Right. Now, to be clear, I can't say for certain, for any certainty, that it was taken down for political reasons. Mm -hmm. um, there's always, it could be someone alleged it was a copyright violation or that whoever posted it didn't have the but right to share up. the video. But it's back up. It could have been, I mean, YouTube is a large company. I did, it's, you know, someone complains, Mistakes they take happen. it down. Right, mistakes happen, but people point out, seems to be, you know, mistakes often happening in, in the direction of provocative content mm -hmm. on the right and maybe to some degree the left as well. Why are the mistakes 
always going in, in those directions. Yeah, they're not, they're not taking down makeup videos. Right, right. We're very focused on the, yeah. you know, the potential for political censorship. Yeah. So I, I never want to say that that's the only kind of thing going on. But, um, but yeah, they, uh, they, after I, but I think I was the only one who asked. I think yeah. I, I dug up a YouTube contact. I was like, What's the deal with this? And yeah. they said, okay, we're putting it back up. Well, good, good work on your end. I mean, so we completely agree about the, you know, kind of the speech implications and the kind of social media politics of this. I wonder, you know, should we take a moment to t discuss what was actually said in that speech? Because there's mm -hmm. been a really, it's been a really interesting Rorschach test of sorts for folks. Um, I don't know, don't know if we have some of the clip to play here, but, you know, she is talking about, you know, a really, it's a very identity I would argue a very identity politics heavy message. Now, I'm someone who critiques the weaponization of identity politics. I don't think having an identity is a bad thing the way that some might think of the conservative critiques kind of frame it. Everyone has lots mm -hmm. of intersecting identities. You know, we're volleyball players and women and black and New Yorkers and a lot of things all at once. And, and, dungeon, just, ma and dungeon masters. And dungeon masters, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. And so she's talking For D &D, about- For not sex stuff. <laughs> To, to be clear, but she's talking about what it means to be a woman and a mother and feeling in her view, like those are roles that are not as supported, mm -hmm. I guess, in society. And there are some people who see this as a kind of fascist adjacent uh, mess and, and kind of anti-feminist message uh, and others who see it as empowering and speaking to a truth about how they've seen certain kind of roles take a backseat in their view in the public sphere. I, I don't want to mischaracterize uh, the clip, but I mean, what did you make of it substantively? Yeah, I, I think um, she was articulating a vision that is very within the, the center of what the new right thinks, what, uh, what conservative, American conservatives, American conservative thinkers, pundits, politicians, you know, people who are thought leaders of, of that movement, like, uh, Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance and, and, and certain uh, conservative news outlets. I, I thought this was exactly what those people think with very little. Uh, so so you, you, if you're going to describe that as, you know, which I'm not saying you didn't do that, mm -hmm. but uh, some kind of uh, uh, mainstream or liberal people saying, you know, that this is a fascist party or it has fascist roots, which it may have connections to fascism in Italy. Like, that's just a factual question. Mm -hmm. But if you're describing the philosophy she was articulating as fascist, you're really calling what a significant chunk of American conservatives think as fascists. Yes. It was exactly yeah. what it's exactly what they believe. Well, let me read. Here's a here's a quote of it that's been translated in the Washington Post. She says, "Why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightening? Right. There is a single answer to all these questions because it defines us. Because it is our identity. Because everything that defines us is now an enemy for those who would like us to no longer have an identity and to simply be perfect consumer slaves. The the express by the way, just interrupting here, the express focus on identity is an interesting mm -hmm. contrast to the way identity politics has been a, a, a kind of a stalking horse of the right in this country, at least. She goes on to say, and so they attack national identity. They attack religious identity. They attack gender identity. They attack family identity. I can't define myself as Italian, Christian, woman, mother. No, I must be citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number. Because when I am only a number, when I no longer have an identity or roots, then I will be the perfect slave at the mercy of financial speculators, the perfect consumers. That's why we inspire so much fear. That is why this event inspires so much fear, because we do not want to be numbers. We will defend the value of the human being. 
every single human being because each of us has a unique genetic code that is unrepeatable. And like it or not, that is sacred. We will defend it. We will defend God, country, and family. Yeah. That was very, uh, and I had a quote from her, too, that I included in my piece that I wrote. They say it's scandalous for people to defend the natural family founded on marriage, to want to increase the birth rate, to want to place the correct value on human life, to support freedom in education, and to say no to gender ideology. Right? These are all things that American conservatives are talking about now. The only uh, aspect of what she was saying, and she, that financial speculators, mm -hmm. which she said a couple times in the speech. But remember, the speech was in Italian. Yeah. This is being translated, sure. so I, I, I'm not, also, uh, I'm not sure a, what the I exact mean, I know translation what the implication of, of financial right. speculators <laughs> is, but honestly, I was going to say this, there's a version of the speech that is very leftist. Obviously, that version. You know, con con uh, leftist. The financial say, speculators part. Well, yes, the 99% versus yeah. the 1%, Wall Street, corporate overlords, corporate overlords, yeah. oligarchy, all of that. Moreover, but one of the leftist rejoinders to the right is always you talk about the family, but you won't do anything to actually support the family through policy means. And I would love it if we women could opt or any, any parent could opt to stay at home because you only needed one salary to work or people didn't have to basically pay a childcare person the same amount that they're earning at work because childcare is so expensive and we don't have supports for that in this country. I, I have no issue with being proud of one's identity, whether it's a religious identity, your gender identity, your family identity, your racial identity. The attack on identity as categories is something that comes very particularly from the conservatives in this country, not from the left. And it is, you know, I think that this is perhaps a, you know, an opportunity for leftists to really hit their message about how they would actually like to do something like about this and not just leave it in the realm of rhetoric. I have to, I have to bring it up in Washington D.C. Yeah, you need a college by law a college degree to be a childcare worker. For like for little kids to take yeah, care of little kids. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's inappropriate. I think it is inappropriate. Maybe that's inappropriate. But the you know, I I have to we should have some child care experts on to actually talk about what is involved in the work. Because my only hesitation is I don't want to say something that diminishes what is required in a job. Because I you know, I appreciate workers and what what they have to do. And maybe there's things that you do have to have a specialized training for. Maybe that training doesn't have to come in college, maybe it does. You know, I don't. I don't want to speak to that um, out of ignorance. But certainly, we need to, for whatever, do whatever we can to make it easier for people to be childcare providers and to have childcare providers at whatever education level more compensated for the very important work that they do. All right. Well, we'll be back with more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Earlier this week, the AP reported that more than $12 billion in aid to Ukraine would be part of the stopgap spending bill, a bill that funds the government into mid-December, after the Biden administration requested that billions in funding be attached to the package for Ukraine. And just yesterday, another $1.1 billion weapons package was announced for the war-torn country. Here's Karine Jean-Pierre with the announcement. This includes 18 new high-mobility artillery rocket system and also known as HIMARS, which Ukraine has used so effect effectively on the battlefield. It is also includes hundreds of armored vehicles, radars, and counter-drone systems. We will not be deterred from supporting Ukraine. We will continue to stand with the Ukrainian people and provide them with the security assistance they need to defend themselves for as long as it takes. As long as it takes, or until we run out of weapons, that is. According to CNBC, the U.S. and Europe are running out of weapons to send Ukraine. 
Maybe the shirts off our backs as well. This week, NATO members held a special meeting of the alliance's arms directors to discuss ways to refill members' nations' stockpiles. Wonder if there are some large weapons dealing um, uh, organizations, companies, etc., that can uh, that can provide. I'm sure they'd be so happy to do that to it's sell a good, us more it's weapons. A, it's a good thing our secretary. We're stimulating the economy. <laughs> what, how convenient that our secretary of defense is a former uh, Raytheon. Oh, wow! Wow! <laughs> a, a top top guy. Well, that's a relief. Um, think of the scale of that. Uh, what that means, but yeah. the, 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 our global stock, the, the country is running out of weapons to send to Ukraine. All of the conflict that's happening in the world, all of the things that are going on around the globe, and the provision of arms to this one spot on the globe has been at such a volume that they're literally running out <laughs> of materials. Yeah. Anywhere <laughs> to, to send to them. Yep. Yeah, that's something uh, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, frequent uh, guest on our show, warned that we were at, eventually we'll come to the point where we're actually depleting the, the stockpile that we're supposed to have in the event of, uh, in the extremely, unbelievably unlikely event. But still, that's we're supposed to be prepared. That's the, the, part, point. the purpose of the U.S. government is to defend the country, the people of the U.S. from attack, yeah. that is at its most basic, the purpose of government. Yeah, just, the most yeah. core reason we yeah. have a federal government is to protect the people of the United States from an attack. And we are, we are compromising our ability to, to do that um, while at the same time perhaps making uh, an actual conflict involving the U.S. and involving U.S. forces, U.S. citizens, U.S. people, somewhat more likely yeah. by continuing to participate um, in, in this war, which needs to be needs to be brought an end to via negotiation and diplomacy. Yeah, now is the time. Now is the time. How many times can I say that? Your point about stockpiles is, is well taken, especially when you reflect on what we just went through with the monkeypox vaccine. Remember, part of the scandal there was that America has historically kept stockpiles of vaccines in refrigerators across the country in case of a pandemic outbreak, right. and it had decided to let it expire, some of the biggest stockpiles expire, because it didn't want to incur the expense of maintaining them and re refreshing them. And then uh, you know, the disease hits American shores, and we're scrambling, trying to get shots from Europe and fly them over here. So you know, it, I know that it can seem expensive to keep stuff around for when you right. know in an emergency, but that, to your point, is literally the entire purpose of the American millions government. for defense, but not one cent for tribute. That's an old uh, that's an old U.S. slogan. It's for uh, it's for uh, it, it was for the 1800 um, quasi war, I believe, with uh, with France. Mm -hmm. That um, they the, some the I believe it was the French ambassador demanded some huge bribe or something mm -hmm. and uh, and from the U.S. government mm -hmm. and we said no millions millions for defense we'll spend millions on our defense but we will not give you one cent mm -hmm. for this bribe. Well, one interesting political aspect of this is that we are having really robust conversations about how Biden's behavior will you know, affect the public one way or the other going into midterms. Whether you know inflation coming out of the news a little bit helps him, whether mm -hmm. st student debt cancellation helps them, whether Roe v. Wade helps them, and whether Democrats are now seeing opportunities that no one anticipated a few months ago during midterms. In all of that conversation about who is going to win, whether you know the Trump candidates are going to win versus the DeSantis candidates are going to win, and whether Biden's recent gaffe is going to fell him, funding for Ukraine seems to be a conversation that happens completely separate and apart from his 
political. Right. He right, doesn't position. even think about the political ramifications of it, even though it's but clearly the, the not popular. The public also doesn't see like the the media yeah. isn't framing any Ukraine no. news as this is going to hurt Biden or this is going to help Biden. Only us. Yeah. We are the only ones who talk about, we're literally the only two people in the entire media, <laughs> no, virtually, who talk about um, uh, whether, who, who acknowledge that a lot of people, a lot of the American people yeah. are, are not nearly as sold, not even close to as sold, on the importance of this spending as the government is. And do you include Fox News conservative outlets among? Yeah, well, no, I, well they, yeah, them as well. Certainly them as well. Um, I mean, we do that because, because I would, but we're, I would, the, we're not, I would say we're the only not explicitly conservative show. But, but I would, I would, I would argue the fact that even, you know, look, if, 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 if Republicans were screaming, Joe Biden sending more money to Ukraine yeah. is a terrible idea, people don't want to vote for him, nobody wants to vote for a warmonger, I would expect to see some responsive coverage on MSNBC and CNN, because they're very reactionary. Right. They're always talking about whatever right. Fox News is talking about. And they would be also saying, well, I don't know if Biden should do this, because it's going to hurt him in midterms. But that conversation is right, not, happening, not happening, which suggests to me that although there are a few figures on the right who will criticize actions like this, the establishment overall, the conservative establishment overall, is as supportive right. of this. As well, and, the on, and on Fox, it, it's very. I think it's very host specific. Yeah. Uh, Tucker has been very uh, uh, skeptical of the need to help out in the Ukrainian war. He has been very critical of what we're doing. Um, I don't think that's true across the board. I, th I mean, there's gen there's genuine differences of opinion, and and actually there's genuine differences of opinion among conservatives and among Republican officials. With yeah. again, some Republican House members um, voting against this kind of thing, and then and most of them um, not. I, I would say there's there's more disagreement, uh, a genuine, a healthy philosophical disagreement uh, in, in Republican and conservative circles, frankly, than there are in, uh, in, in Democratic circles. I, I agree. I, can't, I cannot and have no interest in defending progressives or the squad uh, at all on this score. They've been really disappointingly silent yeah. as these aid packages have gone out. Um, and it's caused some consternation on the left. My theory is that they've become uh, kind of very uh, responsive or, or part of, um, how would I describe it, cultural pressure in a way, mm. given that AOC and others are kind of, have become cultural figures. Their mm. they're fashion is critiqued. I mean, they're thought leaders in a cultural sense. Mm. And the, the Hollywood and the, the kind of cultural heights of our country are so in favor of helping Ukraine. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone wanted to do their photo op with Zelensky mm -hmm. is a good example. Mm -hmm. So you would be, you would almost become a pariah in the circles they've been. that's what they were been... supposed to do. No, I know. That's not a defense of them. And, that's and an I, explanation of what they're doing. And I think it's actually sapping them of their power. Sabby yeah. Sabs, who was a guest on this show a week or two ago, uh, she did some interesting coverage recently where she pointed out, she's from the Boston area, five, I believe five squad members, uh, Ayanna Presley, AOC, uh, Ilhan Omar, like there were like some collection of five of them came to Boston to give a talk and something like only a hundred people were in the room. And she was reflecting on how different that would be if this had happened two years ago mm. when they were, I think, taking a more adversarial posture to the Democratic Party. So mm. they can be silent at their own expense. Mm. Interesting. All right. We'll have more rising uh, in just a minute. Stay with us. Tensions are running high in Brazil as far-right incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro defends his post from left-wing ex-president Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. 
Bolsonaro, a former army captain who served as a Congress member for Rio de Janeiro, rose to prominence around 2014, and Lula, who founded the Workers' Party, is regarded as one of, if not the, most popular presidents in Brazil's history. So here to discuss what's at stake in this election is Craig Pasta Jardula, co-host of the Convo Couch. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to see you. So tell us more about how this race is uh, shaping up. Well, um, there, there could possibly be a second round if the, the uh, one candidate doesn't get the majority 50 plus one votes. Uh, and a lot of people feel that Lula da Silva will be able to wrap it up in the first round. But from what I'm feeling on the streets, and I'm in a uh, Lula stronghold, I'm actually in Sao Paulo, uh, is that if there might possibly be a second round. Um, a lot of people uh, are, are hoping in this area that Lula gets back into power because he was always a champion of the poor. Uh, and that's been his message the whole time. But there are a lot of people out there also who feel that Bolsonaro, and we talked to a lot of cab drivers, Uber drivers, whatnot, that they like the progress in which uh, excuse me, Bolsonaro has uh, created. And also they feel that uh, he needs a second term. Yeah, so when, just to take a step back, when, when Bolsonaro won, it was really reported as evidence of a growing trend of Trumpism, fascism across the globe. There, it, was, it took a lot of people by surprise insofar as that he, he was able to, you know, deploy uh, social media, in particular the WhatsApp app to reach a lot of folks uh, and mobilize a lot of folks that were kind of under the radar. People didn't expect the level of turnout um, that happened precisely because WhatsApp was such an effective way of mobilizing people and getting political messages out. Um, and, and it was also reported in the context of Lula being very popular, but being the subject of a kind of political uh, persecution by a corrupt court system that swept him up in a, a series of um, investigations Investigations into corruption, and it was evidence of this, the, the, the framing was fascist, a kind of a corrupt right-wing Trumpian um, president jails political opponent comes to victory. I wonder how much that narrative exists in Brazil, and how people are uh, feeling about Lula now that they have the perspective of Bolsonaro actually having ruled. Well, that's a great question, and it kind of is crazy because it's eerie some of the parallels that we experienced in our 2020 election uh, to what's going on right now. Uh, Bolsonaro is looked at as almost like the Brazilian-style Trump. Uh, when I speak to his supporters, I always ask, always ask them what their number one issue is with, Bol uh, with Bolsonaro, and they say they wish he would just shut up. You know, he says too many things off the mm -hmm. cuff. Kind of like Trump, you know. Um, and uh, when it comes to Lula, Lula, Lula was jailed last time and couldn't run. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why Bolsonaro really got across the finish line. Uh, and like I said, he's always championed uh, the poor. It's so similar a lot of ways. This is almost like a Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, the, the matchup we never got. It's actually mm -hmm. almost like taking place right here with a lot of the same rhetoric, a lot of the same narratives. Yes, you'll hear the term right wing, anti-LGP, fascist, uh, but then you'll hear from his supporters, he's a populist. Mm. Uh, you know, he's helping the industrialization of Brazil grow. So there's so many similarities. And yes, that same rhetoric that played in before is playing into now, especially when you talk to the people on the streets. Mm. Although the uh, kind of political persecution element of this is almost reversed, right? Because, you know, domestically in the US it is 
former President Donald Trump, who faces various potential charges over, you know, the latest stuff being Mar-a-Lago uh, raid, et cetera, uh, whereas in this contest, the, you know, person who had law enforcement action taken against them is the left-wing um, challenger who was, you know, charged with money laundering and corruption, et cetera, and was convicted and sent to prison. And then I, I believe the, my understanding is, uh, appealed and has won. Is that the shape of it? Yeah, I mean, but they're also talking about new charges right now that they've let slip through the crack on Lula. It seems like that's the way they're attacking him, is that he's corrupt, uh, that he should have never been uh, set free. So even though there, there's that argument that it's the left wing that who's been kind of persecuted, uh, you know, with jail time and whatnot, it depends on who you talk to. It's still more the same. It's almost identical to what we see in the States. If you talk to a Bolsonaro person, Lula's corrupt. If you talk to a uh, Lula person, they'll tell you that Bolsonaro has pretty much just given away all the land and the resources to multinational co uh, corporations. And so it, it all depends on who you talk to. It's, it's almost so like identical to what you're seeing in the States and what you saw in 2020 when you talk to the supporters from both sides. Well, the similarities continue. Apparently, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro has taken notes from former President Trump's playbook. His latest is claiming uh, potential election fraud uh, if he does not win. Here's Senator Bernie Sanders speaking against any attempted coups in Brazil. But it is the business of the United States to make clear to the people of Brazil that our government will not recognize or support a government that comes to power through a military coup or the undermining of a democratic election. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you make of Bernie's remarks there? Well, I mean, it, it's, it, it's laughable sometimes. I mean, uh, remember when Donald Trump was uh, running against Joe Biden, they said he wouldn't give up power if he lost an election, when simply Donald Trump and his team were pointing out the irregularities of the election system. Well, here in Brazil, they have a DRE system, which is a direct recording electronic device. There is no ballot paper, tr paper trail. Now, we've met with election officials who say it's an open source system. There's 10 audits to be that come into play. But I mean, can you fully trust a computerized system? That's what the Bolsonaro team has been pointing out. Uh, and this is my fifth election here in Latin America. Every single election I went to, there's hand-marked paper ballots with public counting. In Brazil, we have a machine system in play. Like I said, a person goes in, their ID is checked, they press buttons on the screen, and whatever comes out, comes out. Now, the election council is saying it's an open source system with 10 audits, but you know it's hard to just go and say, we're gonna trust the system when there is no paper ballot trail. But I think it's much of the rhetoric we saw in the United States when they said that Trump wouldn't give up power. They're trying to say the same thing here for Bolsonaro, but personally, I don't buy it. Hmm. Yeah, and, and to be clear, you know, there was the reason that we know about the kind of the politically motivated nature of the, you know, Lula persecution was because there was this enormous um, trove of documents, emails, communications that were leaked to the Intercept. The Intercept broke that story and reported on it back in 2018. Um, there was something called Operation Car Wash, which is a corruption probe that was basically weaponized. Very explicitly, we found out from these communications by people who had been vehemently denying doing so. And so it's not that there isn't corruption in Brazil, obviously, or that Lula wasn't a part of it, but that there was an effort as at the higher, the highest echelons of the court system to try to take him down for political reasons. It's a fascinating story that I'm sure we'll continue to fo uh, follow. And we appreciate you for joining us here today. Thank you for having me on, guys. We'll have more rising for you after this.
the Justice Department announced that more than 10 million fentanyl pills were seized in a month-long operation with law enforcement agencies. This equates to 36 million lethal doses. According to the DOJ, the Justice Department Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, also confiscated 980 pounds of fentanyl powder across the country from uh, May 23rd through September 8th as part of the One Pill Can Kill initiative. The DOJ also said that of the 390 cases investigated during this period, 129 are linked to social media platforms, including Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger. Um, although I wouldn't say that, let's not say this is like a social media problem or something, or that those are places that what people are having conversations mm -hmm. about how to get drugs. I mean, it, it would not, if we had stricter enforcement on those platforms, I think it would make not one iota of difference in terms of the epidemic of people accidentally use, yeah. poisoning themselves with fentanyl, right? It's, it's Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, like, so, so that's the That's the problem. People are, people are doing drugs, and then those drugs are laced with a, a poison right. that they don't know. They're not, people are not trying to overdose on fentanyl. Exactly. They're not like, give me all the fentanyl I can't. It's, it, they're being poisoned. Exactly, which is a really strong argument, I would say, for drug legalization. Yes. Because no one who can go yes. and buy regulated, tested, sure. proven marijuana is going to risk death from some of these other unregulated drugs. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hard agree. We're going to have a lot of agreement in this yeah, segment. Well, I, I, we should say that you know one of the most hotly watched uh, Senate races in the country weighed in on this issue with Dr. Oz uh, tweeting just recently, 45 minutes ago, rainbow fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin and is designed to target children and teens. John Fetterman supports legalizing dangerous drugs like this, which of course isn't true. Nobody yes. wants fentanyl as we've just described. And uh, Mehmet Oz, as is his trend is getting ratioed for this uh, tweet He should online. be ratioed. The D so the DEA also has been warning that drug cartels are making colorful, quote, rainbow fentanyl to appeal to kids. Their press release, this is a press release from the DEA, brightly colored <laughs> fentanyl is being seized in multiple forms, including pills, powders, and blocks that resemble sidewalk chalk. Um, I ran an article uh, in Reason Magazine uh, from my colleague Lenore Skenazy, who's really good at debunking these kinds of things. Mm. She says there's no evidence these pills are being marketed to children. Addiction psychiatrist a psychiatrist, Sally Sattel, who's quoted in that article, says she's skeptical that dealers would try to target children where there's not an existing market, uh, uh, again, according to uh, Lenore, my, my dear friend. So it, it is simply, it's just not the case. I mean, now, yeah. now, they are, they are it, it, is, it is very common for people selling drugs to right, make them more colorful, make the packaging more exciting, you know, describe it with like fun words to make it a more attractive product to the people they're trying to sell it to. That's not children, though. They're not. Uh, th this sounds like like the Skittles panic or the the the, the, the uh, Skittles parties. You hear that? Do you remember those? No. You remember those? <laughs> no. Um, Enlighten me, Robbie. Where you were just supposed to? It, it was a moral panic about. Oh yeah, the kids these days they come to these parties and everybody has uh, has a different like um, like pill that they got out of their parents. Um, uh, uh, bathroom cabinet, yeah. bathroom cabinets, and they all switch them and they all take them. It's not a, it's not a real thing. It never happened. It's that kind of it, it, it involve the kids' moral panic. Look, I'm sure ki kids do accidentally poison themselves by taking prescription drugs or household cleaners. Um, accidentally, it happens all the time. It's, there's not a uh, concerted effort among drug dealers too, and because th this this fear is specifically coming always comes around this time of year Halloween. as we lead into Halloween, yeah. because there is this absolutely wrong-headed fear that 
if you trick or treat and you know you go to neighbors' homes and they they give out candy and that oh no what if that candy is poisoned mm -hmm. you know what if they've injected it with something because there was one case decades ago <laughs> of this of a child who died yeah. from what was accused to be poisoned Halloween candy what happened in that case and it happens in every single one of these cases that I've ever covered and again my colleague Lenore has covered a lot of these is that child's own father mm. killed him mm. and. And went to jail for it. It's, it, it. There's never. It's always. It's always within the household. No mm. one. No one who has drugs is like eager to part with them right. to randomly kill a, a child on another street. Evergreen tweet. Drugs are expensive. Nobody wants to give them to your kids for free. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, that is. Not, and, 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 and the parents did it. Yeah. <laughs> always. Uh, yeah. <laughs> always. Yeah. I mean, someone. You know, many people have pointed this out now on on Twitter. You know, people are, have said things like, you know, the 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 volume of fentanyl that would someone who would have to consume if they really thought it was candy, like taking handfuls of those pills or multiples of those pills as though it were chalk and a kid were just ch chomping down on chalk would kill them. As one, as one kid, as, as a kid does. A kid does. Yeah. But that, that would kill them, which yes. kind of defeats this argument that they're just trying to get your kids hooked. Right. Also, the idea of getting an eight-year-old hooked on fentanyl, like that means they're going to be out on the street, like trying to deal in Jones for, yeah. like what, yeah. what is, what is really gonna, imagining? They're really going to break <laughs> open the piggy bank in order to, in order to <laughs> satisfy that fix. It's, um, it's not a thing. Yeah. Which is not to say the fentanyl crisis is a that huge is problem. Yeah. People are taking drugs that are laced with a poison, that are, that are have a component in them that is poison, Absolutely. and they're dying, and Absolutely. they're dying in huge numbers. 71, huge problem. 71,000 overdose, overdose deaths yeah. uh, this year are linked to synthetic opioids. Those are, those are people who took a drug on purpose, yes. but within the drug it was fentanyl. Yeah. It's not an example. It's not... It's not people accidentally taking something they didn't know right. was a drug. Right. In the first, I'm, I'm sure it's happened one in a million times, but it's not, it's not, it's not happening more broadly. So let's be aware of the actual problem. You can still. I saw news segments the past few days about, um, even on Fox, I think some, some people saying that like, does this mean we have to do the thing we did during the pandemic, where kids, you know, are only doing pretend trick or treating in their own backyards or something? And I was like, "Are you kidding me? No, no, no! You, 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 you can trust your neighbors broadly. You can, uh, you can trick or treat normally." Lenore uh, did a, a great report on this for us at Reason once, um, uh, looking at. Um, and also the, the idea that like sex offenders are out to get your kid. There's all these, these myths about Halloween and how dangerous it is. She said she looked at the statistics. The only way in which Halloween is a more dangerous night for various things is that uh, more people get hit by cars. Mm -hmm. So if, if the police want to make Halloween a safer night, more traffic coordinators, mm -hmm. more you know, cross the street now, that kind of thing absolutely would, mm -hmm. would do some good. There's, you don't have, to, don't have to test the candy for, for poison. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I feel really safe putting my uh, costume back on and hitting the streets again after taking a couple of years off. Can't wait to see it. <laughs> All right. More rising for you after this. Watching pop superstar Lizzo play a 200-year-old crystal flute that was owned by President James Madison. The instrument was loaned to Lizzo by the Library of Congress. It was crafted in 1813. The flute was a gift to President Madison for his second inauguration. Very interesting history there. Not mm. everyone was happy about it, though. Some conservatives blasted Lizzo online for twerking while playing the flute. 
twerking being one of her dance moves she's known for. The Library of Congress really took out a 200-year-old flute that belonged to James Madison just so Lizzo could twerk with it. They degrade our history and then call you racist if you actually value it. That was from a conservative <clears throat> on the screen. Looks like that's Greg Price. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know you're a big Lizzo fan, Brianna. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, Lizzo it happens to be one of the more positive stars mm -hmm. out there. She is very uplifting and warm and gracious. She has a huge fan base because of it. Her like, music is very joyful. Her concerts are very joyful. And she also happens to be a trained flautist. So it looks like this, this flute, flute has been kind of out of the public eye, unseen for 200 years. And now we're all talking about it and getting this wonderful piece of history because the people at the Library of Congress have lent it to Lizzo to play here at a concert, and there are also some clips of her playing it and really demonstrating her her talent as, yeah, as a flute player. Yeah, she's very talented. Um, I, I think yeah, concert, the concerns that are mad are mad about the they're mad about the twerking. They're mad they're about mad the about, twerking. Look, I, I I mean I can't work up any anger about this whatsoever. <laughs> I, her flute playing is lovely. Um, who cares? Yeah, otherwise, I, think it's important I don't to know. Do, to do these things. Oh, here's a clip of her in the Library of Congress. Um, I think. Yeah, this this is amazing. And people were not, to be clear, people were not mad about this mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. um, well. <laughs> I think they were not that mad. So Ben Shapiro tweets, this Lizzo flute controversy, controversy is a perfect example of what I have termed face tattoo phenomenon. The phenomenon whereby someone does something deliberately controversial in an attempt to draw attention, then acts offended when you notice. And he says, if all we had seen was the clip of Lizzo playing the flute in the halls of the Library of Congress, while wearing a semi-modest outfit, everyone would have shrugged. But that's not the clip everyone championed as groundbreaking. It was the clip with the twerking. But I, I want to talk about that for a minute. So he says the, the face tattoo. So somebody gets a face tattoo, and then you go, and then you are provoked by it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then that's the reaction. But you're conceding that that's the reaction that they want. Mm -hmm. if, so if your view is people are, are going around or people like Lizzo, people on the left, I guess, people, whatever, we're talk whoever we're talking about, they're trying to provoke you then shouldn't you try harder not to be provoked? Yeah. Like, doesn't that, it, this is the, this is like the stop hitting me, stop hitting me, and then you get upset, and then you give that person what they want? Right. Like, if your theory is they're trying to get a rise out of you, I, I, w I would think you should just absolutely stop playing into it. Just don't care and no, move on. No, because Ben Shapiro, he's playing his own side of the game. There's a reason mm -hmm. when the song WAP came out, he dedicated so much time to criticizing it and doing his own little uh, read of the lyrics of the song that were then flipped into a rap song in and of itself. Like, he he benefits also from these anger media cycles. It's a it's a whole thing. And look, I, that song I really I, like. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, of that song. Of Car you're yeah. a Cardi B stan. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I like, I like no. I like that song in particular. It, look, oh, it's catchy. <laughs> duly duly noted, Robbie. <laughs> what I love about this, Robbie, is that a few months ago when we were covering a different Lizzo story, yes. you were like, I don't think I know any Lizzo songs. And then today, before we started recording this one, you started singing about how it's bad beat o'clock. <laughs> yeah, it's thick. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned. I've learned what the. I've heard on the radio enough now. They're, they're catchy songs. Yeah. Okay. I will also say this. I don't think that Lizzo was trying to be intentionally provocative. She obviously, as we saw from these clips, she she like does that little dance a lot. She she yeah. wiggles her bottom. She twerks a lot. I think that's an authentic representation of herself. You don't have to like it, but I think it is an un 
questionable good for a flute that nobody knew existed until this to have so much focus on it and for us to know so much about the history now because it's actually being played by someone who is mm -hmm. a talented musician and who has an audience and a platform to bring that history to the foreground. There were a few, though, people who were mad coming from the other direction, yes. from the left or from progressives, whatever you want to call them, who were mad that you would give any kind of acknowledgement to an instrument that was owned by a former that is slave true. owner, etc. So there were, you know, at, yeah, there, here's a tweet from someone who is calling out Lizzo as basically like a white supremacist or something for, well, for being. They think that wearing an American flag hat and playing Jane Madison's flute is kind of jingoistic in a way that is counter to yeah. what left politics or whatever. I frankly, I, I hear the criticism. I don't care about it. I think that it's interesting history. I, I was never one of the, you know, take down statue types. I'm more of, I mean, some probably are so egregious, but mostly I'm for contextualization right. and helping people to understand the history for what it was, right. not erasing it altogether. One, one other thing I'll say about this. I, I had a violin teacher who's a classic uh, jazz violinist, um, you know, very talented woman who participated in one of these programs where she was lent a Stradivarius violin that was worth insured for like millions of dollars for this exact same reason. Because otherwise, these are museum relics that sit somewhere. And these were these were things that were meant to be played the most amazing, best manufactured instruments in their class. And I think it, it, it's obviously a good thing for them to be out in the world uh, on loan to musicians who can actually use them instead of sitting in a drawer somewhere. Um, the Library of Congress responded to critics who say it was inappropriate for Lizzo to play such an old flute, saying, quote, for those concerned about the flute, music division curators made sure it could be played without damage. This sort of thing is not all that unusual. In fact, some of the library's priceless instruments were donated with the stipulation mm -hmm. that they remain functional and be played. Mm -hmm. So to that yeah. to that point, just as you said, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's uh, you know the 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 point of a musical instrument is to be played, right? Yeah. There, we, we we want to preserve interesting things and talk about history, but you know, just always having something on the shelf out of reach to look at is not necessarily always the yeah. point. And it's all of our history. I think it's there's something really beautiful about how you know people might some people might be mad, but I think it's lovely that we live in an America where a woman like Lizzo can play that flute and it for it to be enjoyed by so many people and to have an appreciation for the artistry and the craftsmanship and the history of this country. So I think it's a win all around. Really glad nobody dropped it. <laughs> that would have been a fitting end. The flute has been played and now shattered across the It's a revolutionary the act. <laughs> that, that would have made some people mad. All right, we'll have uh, more rising after this. I'm going to play you out with a little Lizzo's flute. <laughs> Dr. Anthony Fauci's net worth soared during the pandemic. According to a report from OpenTheBooks.com, auditors at the site received Dr. Anthony Fauci's fiscal year 2021 financial disclosures from the National Institutes of Health. And it turns out the Fauci household disclosed net worth increased from $7.6 million as of January 2019 to just over $12.6 million in December 2021. Fauci remains the most highly compensated federal employee of all, earning $456,000 in 2021 and $480,000 in 2022, even out-earning the President of the United States, four-star <laughs> generals, and roughly 4.3 million other federal bureaucrats. <laughs> U.S. Senator Roger Marshall previously forced open Dr. Anthony Fauci's unredacted 2019 and 2020 financial disclosures, to which America's top doc had this to say. 
in my financial disclosure is public knowledge and has been so for the last 37 years or so, 35 years well, that the, I've been directing. The big tech giants are doing an incredible job of keeping it from being public. Uh, we'll continue to, what, to look for it. Where would we find it? All you have to do is ask for it. <laughs> I, I, you're so misinformed, it's extraordinary. Well, why am, I, why am I misinformed? This is a huge issue. Wouldn't you agree with me that, that you have a you see things before members of Congress would see what? them, so that there's a, an air of appearance that, that maybe some shenanigans are going on. You know, I don't think that's, I assume that that's Senator, not the case. What I are you talking it's about? not the case. My, my financial disclosures are public knowledge and have been so. You are getting amazingly wrong information. Yeah, I mean, it, look, to be clear, it is pretty easy to find out right. what, uh, what his salary is and then what he's being paid beyond that. It's his salary is exorbitant. He's a government he's employee. He, yeah. yeah, he's literally the highest paid because he's just been in government for so long. Like a and thousand it's like on a years. Pay, on a, a ratcheting up pay scale. Yeah. Now, that is in and of itself maybe its own critique, right? He is someone who was criticized for uh, his kind of professional choices in the course of the AIDS uh, pandemic, epidemic, uh, and the fact that he's been around for so long despite having some really substantive criticisms raised against him throughout is a question about the, the choices of people who have hired him and maintained him for yeah. so long. But I think the salary aspect there is less of a gotcha than just a reality of what it means to work for a place for a really long time. Sure. So we looked through what the increase is largely attributed to. He received some rewards, um, uh, some, some awards that, that contained money, um, you know, various things like that. Uh, really, this was not this is not as sizable a jump as he's going to get, I bet, mm -hmm. in the next few years. He's going to get millions more from speaking fees, mm -hmm. selling a book, perhaps sitting on a corporate board mm -hmm. or two. Or three. Uh, or he's <laughs> he's going to be exorbitantly more wealthy than this. I, I've said this is why he's retiring now, in part, because... He's, he's much. He's a very old man. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's still, you know, healthy. He still has a, at least a few good years ahead of him to really make bank, and I, mm -hmm. I expect him to. And look, I don't really, um, honestly, you know, I don't care that much. Uh, especially if, if, if private, if people want to buy his book, if people want to pay him to speak, if you want to do those kinds of things, you know what? More power to him. That's not really my issue with him. Um, I, I don't care that he makes uh, money speaking in that way. It's a little bit different when he's the ease with which he can sit on a board and then lobby for policies that he, that his, the team he left in place is responsible for implementing him, that's a little bit dirtier. Mm -hmm. But overall, my issue with Fauci is not, is not it's, it's his policies. It's mm -hmm. the things he, he did. It's, it's what he came to represent as an advocate for, um, for kind of thunderously shouting down people who disagreed with the scientific consensus while then hiding behind that, well, I'm just giving guidance. You know, I didn't shut down anything. I'm just mm -hmm. giving guidance. Well, <laughs> that's that's not how it was interpreted by you know the, all of the state local officials who treated his word as as a divine revelation for three years. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I agree. The only thing that's really untoward about what could potentially happy, happen with uh, Fauci and his. Um, personal wealth is whether or not there's actual corruption there, right? So mm -hmm. is he going to be 
lobbying, um, being paid to lobby the organization that he headed for right. so many years. To require vaccines yeah, or, <laughs> and things you like know, that. In a way that generally benefits the pharmaceutical industries yeah. or other corporatized interests that are not aligned with the interests of the American people. That's the concern. Yes. The, the fundamental corruption of concern is whether or not people in positions of power are doing things for personal benefit as opposed to for the public good, which is why I think some of the conservative attacks on Fauci, like the questioning we saw there in that last clip, they fall a little flat. And it's, it seems like a wasted opportunity because there could be an opportunity during those question and answer sessions to really drill down on how he intends to use his power, privilege, and platform I agree. after I he agree gets out you. of office and also to turn the focus on all of the corruption that is sincerely happening in Washington. I mean, a, a Congress member sitting there grilling Fauci about- Congress doesn't want to have that conversation because they're, it, it, exactly. they're this is what, guilty. What I'm about to say, a Congress member grilling Fauci about how much money he has when the average Congress member doubles, triples, quadruples their wealth. People like Nancy Pelosi are sitting here with tens of millions of dollars in wealth that are, are obviously not coming from her congressional salary and which are also uh, in, in sync with her oh, right. opposition to bans on insider trading and the like, it, it, it seems really hollow and it seems performative and political, which is especially grievous because there is a real issue here. No, I think you're right. And, and this is a huge problem that we can't trust. We can't trust Congress to regulate itself. We can't trust anyone there to do uh, things as basic as bring the Stock Act necessarily for a vote. Yeah. Right? That, and there's, there's tremendous bipartisan buy-in to the idea that, uh, that no, why, why, why would they vote to limit their financial options. Unfortunately, yeah. they're not going to. Sorry, the, both the, sides the, want to do that. The people have got to start enacting some limits test. The people yeah. have got to stop say, to start saying, we're not going to vote for Democrats. We're not going to vote for Republicans who can't pass basic legislation like this. We talk a lot on the show about um, the money being sent to Ukraine and how the media is not covering it in a critical way. On the whole, the corporate media isn't, um, even though people are very frustrated by that. There are all of these disconnects I talked about in my radar today about mm -hmm. how there's a huge disconnect between what people want and these what these legislators are willing to provide. And it's not going to change. It's not going to change unless there start to be electoral consequences. And I'm sorry, movements of people in the street demanding different kinds of um, alternatives. Mm -hmm. But this two-party system has really got a lot of people under their thumb. It's why so many people were interested in the idea of an independent from Vermont, who is one of the few people in Congress who does make a lot of hay about these kind of corruption issues. You know, And I would like to see a lot more well, I should say a lot less acquiescence to the idea that this is just the way the world is, because it didn't always used to be this way. And we could be um, creating more pressure on politicians to do a little bit less of this grandstanding, a little bit more calling out mm -hmm. actual corruption in the ranks. And, and calling out, in the case of Fauci, the, the one thing that does certainly demand, I, I think, further uh, investigation by Congress or you know, relevant political authorities is, again, we want to get to the bottom of what research was funded and supported. Yeah. But he was a, the foremost public advocate yeah. of, of research that people have a lot of questions about. And that would be truly obscene for him to become, uh, uh, to, to make tens hundreds of millions of dollars in the next several years um, selling his himself speaking writing books about how he saved the world when we have some questions about research he supported right. that our government funded right. that was done that we have questions about yeah absolutely leave it at that more rising right after this At the White House conference on hunger, nutrition, and health yesterday, President Joe Biden called out for Republican representative from Indiana, Jackie Walorski, seeming to forget that she very tragically passed away in a car accident last month. And I want to thank all of you here for 
including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here to help make this a reality. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded to questioning on the president's mistake. What happened in the hunger event today? The president appeared to look around the room uh, for an audience member, a member of Congress who passed away last month. He seemed to indicate she might be in the room. What, so, what happened? so the president was, uh, as you all know, you guys were watching uh, today's event, a very important event on uh, food insecurity. The president was naming uh, the congressional champions on this issue and was acknowledging her incredible work. He had uh, he had already uh, planned to welcome the Congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a, a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Uh, so, of course, she was on his mind. She was of top of mind uh, for the president. He uh, looks very much looks forward to discussing her remarkable legacy of public service with them when he sees her family this coming Friday. That is a lie. Yeah. He was not looking around for her, as, as, or he was not—he was not thinking about her, and 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 just kind of acknowledging her good work. Nope. He thought she was still alive and and, and might be there. Now, right. it's very cringy and very sad. Yeah. It is possible he meets a lot of people, I guess, yes. to have had a, had a momentarily, mo momentary lapse that she did pass away. Yes. He has to keep track of a lot of people. Yes. That could happen to anybody. Uh, anybody. But, but. <laughs> you want to take over from the bus? Yeah. So, one, if this were an isolated incident, I would say leave it alone. Yes. He's got a lot in his mind. He's a president, a president of the United States. This is ridiculous nitpicking. But seen as part and parcel of a, lot, a larger trend, I think it's fair for people to ask questions about you know, his cognitive acuity. And then, even if you don't care about that aspect of it, Karine Jean-Pierre took a mistake and escalated it to a lie yes. with that cover-up attempt. It's absurd. She could have just come out there and said, Hey, he's got a lot on his plate. Everybody forgets things sometimes. It's very regrettable. He's going to have a event for the deceased woman at the end of the week. Thoughts and prayers to her family. No, coming out there and trying to just lie to us like this, it, it really undermines public trust. What does she think? We're stupid? We all just saw the clip. I'm legitimately shocked she tried to get away with that. That is, no one believes what she just said. That is no. so clearly not true. So clearly not true. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, 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 then it, it begs the question, what else is she misrepresenting? Yeah. Because, you know, as, as someone who isn't necessarily in a posture to say, you know, she's particularly duplicitous, you know, any more so than any other press secretary. Right, that's their job. Like, that's, that's the job. These duplicitous press secretaries, <laughs> I just don't know what to make of them. You can't trust them. Can't you can't. Trust you them. can't, you know. Uh, yeah, I've, I've always said I only would do it for Bernie Sanders because we actually sincerely agreed 99% of the time. And moreover, doing it in the context of a campaign is different than doing it yeah. like when you have all of the secrets yeah. <laughs> when you're the president of the United States. But, you know, even though I'm not someone who is out to get Jean Karine Jean-Pierre on some personal basis, at this point, the audacity with which she is manufacturing this lie about something that we all saw with our own eyes on camera really does undermine her own credibility for the longer haul. And also, it's just not a good lie. It's, it was a terrible lie. And look, we all have um, elder relatives. Um, we've all had the experience, most people have had the experience, or they will eventually, of someone who 
is is starting to become forgetful in exactly that way, mm -hmm. um, uh, recalling people as if they're still alive that aren't there anymore, or, or identifying people as some other person that's not around anymore. Sure. I'm, again, I'm not saying that that's necessarily what, what's happened, but it's he a familiar. Could have just been busy. Absolutely, could have been, but it is a familiar kind of forgetfulness for a lot of us. And he's he's very old and uh, is is not as on the on the ball with his words anymore. And we you know we wonder. And he's got if he's going to run for re-election, he's got a ways to go in this presidency. Still, he's right. got he's got a uh, seven more years to go. Six, five, whatever it is, six years there. Look, yeah, something like that. What, we're in twenty. Yeah, we're in twenty twenty two. Six more years potentially. Yes. Well, that's a whole other conversation about whether or not we actually think he's going to go for the eight. Um, but look, a lot was made out of. Bernie Sanders' uh, heart attack during the primary, the fact of him having stents. And I think a lot of folks are going to look to this and say, is there an inconsistency here? Is it just age that's an issue? No. We see people like Bernie, like P Nancy Pelosi, frankly, Chuck Schumer, they're all in a similar age cohort. Elizabeth Warren, they don't seem to be making these kinds of mistakes. So I don't think it's just an age thing. But we do have to look at Joe Biden as an individual. Is he responding in a way that folks want a president to respond. He is someone who has had his own history. He has had a brain surgery in his in a young, much younger it's days. It's an exhausting job. It's it an exhausting wears you job. Down. You've, we've seen, we've all seen, you know, the before and after photos of Obama. Obama and yeah. George Bush. Uh, Bill Clinton to some degree. Donald Trump kind of looks the same. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what, that, what, that's, what that means. <laughs> but uh, it wears you down. And yeah. I just can't even imagine what shape he's going to be yeah. if, uh, if he keeps at this. Yeah. So. It's, well, uh, we'll have to see. We'll see. Next week on Rising, we will be back to bring you all the news you need on the Lord of the Rings <laughs> House of the Dragon, uh, which we didn't even discuss yet. We'll have to get your yeah after, your after view the show. After the show, I love the new. Uh, I love the older actors and actresses. Same. All right. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen and while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can also catch us on the Plex TV app. Goodbye, and I'll see you next week. Next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>